We'll move into our, uh, our teaching session this morning. And so uh, as, as we teach, um, I'm reminded of another part of teaching is learning. And I've done a lot of learning in my life. And the one thing that I'm still not a fan of when it comes to learning is that once you get done hearing your presenter, your professor, your teacher, once you get done with the lecture, the presentation, um, when someone puts me on the spot to see if I have a question, that's one moment I still dread. Now, I love learning, and I love hearing other people's questions because then it helps me further my learning and furthers my curiosity, but I always find myself struggling to ask a question. And I struggle for two main reasons. First, I take a long time to process. And so after you've dumped a bunch of information on me, I'm just like, I can't, you know, I, I feel like I still need to process all of this. It's still so fresh. I don't know if I have the capacity to, to come up with another question. And second, to just completely be honest with you, I don't want to be that person who asks the dumb question. But as any good teacher will tell you, there is no such thing as a dumb question. And I'm learning to accept that. We ask questions to clarify. We ask questions to better understand what we don't understand. And that's why this morning we're kicking off a whole new series about your questions. Today we begin a new series called Ask Because Your Questions Matter. And they do. This series here, we're going to take time and answer the questions that you are most curious about regarding our faith. And so over the last month or so, we surveyed both campuses, St. Paul and Brooklyn Park, and found the top five questions that people were most interested in. And here are the five questions. One, how should Christian view LGBTQ issues? Two, can you believe in Christianity and shamanism? Three, how do you handle Christian families with different values than yours? Four, what does the Bible say about women in leadership? And then five, what's up with Jesus and his liberal talking points? Now, we're not going to answer those questions in order. And so in your schedule, we've got them broke, uh, we broke down the schedule of when we're going to answer them. And so if you want to get an idea of what the upcoming sermon series is going to look like, check that out. And so I just want to thank you for asking these questions. And I trust that in the following month, I'm going to learn a lot and that you're going to learn a lot too. I also hope that this series will encourage you to continue to further your learning because I don't have all the answers to these important questions. But my goal is to share with you succinctly what I'm learning so that we can be faithful to what God has to say regarding these important issues. So you ready to kick off the series? This morning, our first question that we're going to answer is, what does the Bible say about women in church leadership? What does the Bible say about women in church leadership? Now, I've grown up in the church all my life, and almost all of the church leaders that I've had have been men, all men. Pastors, elders, deacons, youth pastors, youth directors, kids ministry directors. Um, the only positions that I haven't seen men be leaders over have been women's ministry and nursery. For some of us, this might be uh, your experience too, uh, and for some others, it might be different. 
Now, interestingly, as I compare my experience of, of the leaders in church um, with the Bible, we find women in a variety of significant spiritual roles. And here's a few in the Old Testament. And so we have Miriam, and Miriam was Moses' sister, the same Moses who freed his people from Egypt, who split the Red Sea. Moses is, uh, Miriam was Moses' sister. And in Micah chapter 6, uh, six verse 4, this is how um, it describes Micah. Uh, Micah uh, describes Miriam as, uh, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from, from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. And this is pretty significant because the, the, the Israelites, they were a very patriarchal culture. And so the fact that Moses and then uh, his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam were also leaders too uh, is very significant. So Miriam uh, was Moses' sister and she was a leader. Uh, in Judges chapter 4, we get Deborah. Deborah was a judge. She was also a prophetess who led the nation of Israel. She solved many people's disputes. Uh, and so again, in the book of Judges, uh, there was a time where the leaders were broken down to judges to solve these disputes. And so Deborah was one of them. So she solved the people's disputes. She even led an army in battle, freeing her people from captivity. And so Deborah is one of the major judges in the Old Testament. Huldah was a prophetess, and in 2 Kings chapter 22, we learn about how she was able to determine what was and what wasn't the authentic law of God. And this helped the king, King Josiah, point his people back to God. And so we get Huldah, who was a prophetess, who was able to determine what was God's authentic law to help the king point his people back to God. In the New Testament, Jesus interacted with women throughout his ministry. Some even became his followers. And again, similar to the Old Testament um, culture, that was not the norm. Women weren't supposed to be following teachers who taught the Bible. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well and reveals to her that he's the Savior. And this is one of the very first, if not the first people, that Jesus reveals his identity to. This causes her to then share the gospel with her entire town. In Luke chapter 8, we learn about women who traveled with Jesus and financially supported his ministry. And then when Jesus was resurrected, he first appeared to a group of women who then told the disciples what had happened. In, uh, out of the gospels, in Romans chapter 16, Paul lists several women and speaks highly of how influential they are in his ministry, into his ministry. And so we get Phoebe, who was a deaconess, one of the two offices in church leadership. Phoebe assisted the elders with practical needs in the church. And if you've been in the, in, in, in the, in the Hmong church, um, deacons are often called the, the ninus. And so they're the ones who sometimes will do the, the, the offering or serve the, um, uh, the communion or run security or meet and greet. And so Phoebe was a deaconess. Uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila were instrumental in the church by reaching out to other ethnic communities. And then we get Junia, who is described as someone who is outstanding among the apostles. Now, there's some interpretation, um, uh, some interpretation issues here of how we interpret the text, uh, which has led to some to speculate that when it says that Junia was outstanding among the apostles, some have wondered if it's referring to her being 
being an apostle, that she was outstanding as an apostle among the apostles. Some say that it just simply means that she had good rapport, she had good relationships with the apostle, but she was an apostle. An apostle. But again, uh, interpretations go, go, go both ways. And so again, this is really unique because the title apostle, uh, whereas we don't use that title today, uh, apostle is primarily reserved for Jesus' original 12 disciples, all men. And then apostle is also a title that was used for others who, witnesses, who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And so Paul gets the, the title Apostle Paul. And then they, the apostles, they receive some sort of authority from the church to do things to further God's kingdom. And so Junia, some interpretations wonder if she was an apostle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, spiritual gifts are, talk, uh, are talked about, and they, they, they talk about, uh, Paul talks about how these spiritual gifts are given to believers regardless of gender. And so it doesn't matter if you're a man or, uh, a man or male or female, you get these, uh, these gifts without any, um, any discrimination or any uh, selection if you're male or female. Now, if we fast forward today, looking at, at the Old Testament and New Testament, we fast forward today, women in church leadership has become one of the more controversial issues, especially women becoming pastors. This year, Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in the U.S., and if you're familiar with Rick Warren, the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven anything church-related, um, Rick Warren was the pastor at Saddleback. Uh, Saddleback made national news because they were kicked out of their denomination for recognizing women pastors. And in our denomination, the Alliance, this year we had a major conversation about uh, women in ministry as well too, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. And so again, in our, in our home here in the U.S., women pastor, women in church leadership can oftentimes be a very controversial controversial issue. And again, for some of us, this might seem very normal because we've grown up in a church where all the men have been leaders. But for others, those issue of women in church uh, might seem a little odd, might seem a little outdated. Maybe we've attended churches where women are the pastor. In our world outside of the church, we see women in top-tier leadership opportunities. Uh, but in the church, again, it still may remains to be one of the more polarizing issues that we face. And though it's polarizing, I just want to start off before we go any deeper that at River Life here, uh, our hope, our desire is that we want women in spiritually significant roles. At River Life, we want women in spiritually significant roles. And so it's my desire, it's the entire team's desire here at River Life to have women in spiritually significant roles. Now, to understand, to better understand why this topic of women in church leadership is so polarizing and controversial, uh, it's important for us to understand the two fundamental perspectives that lead people to decide if they're for women leaders in the church or against women leaders in the church. And these perspectives are known as complementarianism and egalitarianism. Now, before we dive any deeper, I want to share some really helpful resources that I use this week to further help you understand these perspectives um, if you want to know more. And so here are some of the resources that I use this morning. I'll list them here uh, for you. So the first one is uh, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Um, there's a section that talks about uh, women in church, women in the Bible, um, some of the interpretations, misinterpretations about it. It's got, a, you know, it's, it's a book all about different issues in the Bible that's very controversial. And so that's one that's just a good general read to see um, some of the major issues that 
that churches um, are polarized about. Uh, next one was a really helpful resource called Two Views on Women in Ministry. And um, they were, it was edited by Stanley Gundry and James Beck. It's a collection of basically four essays um, that talk about um, women, uh, for, that talk about uh, two individuals share about why they are for women in ministry, and then two talk about why they're not uh, for women in ministry. And what's really unique is that after the the essays written, then each of the other um, each of the other authors they get to contribute and respond to that article. And so right away you get a you get um you get a stance, and then you get some response of why we support or why we don't support, what's helpful, what isn't helpful. And they're all friends, and so it's a very friendly conversation that they have, but also a very academic conversation. Um, if you prefer to listen to things, um, episode 131 of a podcast called Uncomfortable, uh, the title of the podcast, the, the, the episode is Women in Ministry, is a great listen. Um, they start off the podcast talking to women ministers, and then they talk, uh, they invite two pastors who have different views, and they have a very civil conversation with each other. And this podcast is hosted by Christ Community Church, which is an alliance church located in Omaha, Nebraska. And so, a uh, great listen. And then lastly, Holy Post Podcast with uh, Beth Allison Barr, uh, the author of Making a Biblical Womanhood. And so, if you're familiar with VeggieTales, um, the VeggieTales creator, Phil Vischer, he's the host of Holy Podcast, along with co-host Kai Jathani. Um, who's just a brilliant mind, and so they host Beth Allison, they uh, invite Beth Allison Barr, uh, an author and historian who writes about a historical approach of women in the Bible, and so um, Pastor Greg and I were listening to the audiobook version, and it's just very intriguing to jog your mind about what women in ministry has looked like from a historical perspective, um, not so much a theological perspective, but a historical perspective. And so let's go and let's break down these terms, uh, complementarianism, egalitarianism, uh, and see what they mean. And so I'll define them, provide some biblical support that they use, and then offer just some issues surrounding each perspective. And so both of the ideas to start off with, both complementarianism and egalitarianism, they've been around for a while. The ideas, the concept, they've been a while, but as a well-formed, established concept, uh, they are new, and they are, they, they are fairly new, emerging from the late 80s uh, as a response to the cultural changes from the 60s. Um, and so again, kind of like if you're familiar with critical race theory, CRT, some of those ideas have been flowing around, but as of recent, like, you know, people are named like, that's critical race theory, that's CRT. Same thing uh, from what Meyer's saying is true about complementarian and egalitarianism. Again, the ideas that just been kind of flowing around, but then people finally kind of took all those ideas and then put them into a, a nice formed concept uh, in, the, in the 80s. And so both begin with the same foundation, both affirm that humans, both male and female, are created in God's image. And they both agree that male and female are both created equally in quality, importance, and value. And so there is no question that both men and women are worth the same. They are equally worth the same. That's the foundation. After that, things start to differ a little bit. 
And so complementarianism believes that men and women were created to complete each other. Therefore, you get complementarism, complete each other. And so gender roles are purposeful and they are distinct. Men are created to be the head of marriage and the head of the household. Only men can bear the responsibility to provide spiritual leadership and training in the church, specifically through teaching, preaching, and exercising spiritual authority. And only men can hold spiritual authority over other men. Women cannot hold spiritual authority over men. Egalitarianism, on the other hand, believes that, that believes in the uniqueness of gender, so they still affirm that men and women are unique in their, in their sexuality and their gender, but differs that there are no distinctions among the roles. That gender roles, the distinction uh, that, that, that we see today is a result of when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the fall. And so that's where the dynamics change. The roles that men and women have are interchangeable in marriage and household and in church leadership. Uh, men and women mutually submit to one another. Men or women can hold spiritual authority over another. Although they differ, both perspectives believe that their primary concern is to preserve the biblical truth of what God's purpose is for men and women. And so they both believe that the Bible is true, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible tells us what the purpose of men and women should be, but their perspectives are different. And then a the secondary concern I felt that, that was a response to what was happening in the 80s is that complementarianism is concerned uh, of feminism. And so in the 60s, there was a big feminism movement. And so men were concerned that they would not be recognized as important in society uh, and that order would be overthrown if their roles as the head of the household, of the family, of the marriage, of the church was overthrown. Everything would be overthrown. Whereas egalitarians were our concern. Their, their concern is that uh, if we don't don't honor uh, egalitarian. If we don't understand under, uh, honor this understanding, our concern is that there's going to be misogyny. That women will be hated on. That women will be looked down upon. They fear that complementarians, complementarians left unchecked, will abuse their power. And so those are some of the basic. Um, foundations of who they are. Now, the biblical support that they use to support their claims are usually the same passages, and so you can argue uh, both directions with some of the passages, uh, but again, the interpretations are different. How they interpret it, how they understand it are different. And so take, exa for example, the creation narrative in Genesis. And so a broad understanding of Genesis chapter 2 for someone who's a complementarianism, a complementarian, is that God created man first, and then out of man, he created woman. God exercised, uh, man then exercises God-given dominion by naming all the animals. And so for a complementarian, when he names the women in Genesis chapter 23, when he names Eve, he is exercising his dominion over her. This was also depicted of, of Adam's dominion, Adam's responsibility over Eve when, when, um, when God came down after this obeyed and Adam was held accountable for Eve's disobedience. Now, egalitarians, on the other hand, will interpret creation like this, that when God created humanity, uh, there was no separation in roles and responsibilities. There was no hierarchy. And so, again, in complementarian, they see that, again, with males being, male, Adam being created first as a male, he, his order, 
uh, gives, gives him dominion, gives him hierarchy. Whereas with egalitarians, again, when God created humanity, there was no hierarchy. Uh, after he created Adam and Eve, he, both, he gave them both the command in Genesis chapter 128 to be fruitful, to increase in numbers, to fulfill the earth, to, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over the fish and the birds. It was a command unspecific to gender, but rather they both received it equally. They both had an equal responsibility to rule the earth. And again, it wasn't until after sin that caused an imbalance in the relationship. Another point that is heavily debated from the creation story is when the woman is described as helper. And in the original language, um, helper, uh, in some interpretations, is understood as someone who is subordinate and supports the person who is primarily responsible. And so that's how complementarians would see the word helper. Whereas for egalitarians, the word helper, they find that in other parts of the Bible, helper, the same word that's used to describe the women, describe Eve, is also used to describe God. And we know that God isn't subordinate to anyone. God is God. And so those are, those are not, that's another point that they use in terms of supporting their, 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 uh, their, their views. Now, if we move into the New Testament, a verse that each perspective will often refer to is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read it for us. This is what it says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, often scholars will describe this verse as either prescriptive or descriptive. Is this verse telling us what we need to do, or is this describing a specific situation and time? And again, to paint just the really broad stroke across the board, complementarians would say that this is a, a prescriptive passage. The Bible says that it says uh, women aren't supposed to teach, and so women aren't supposed to teach. The interpretation is very literal. Women can do many things, again, except teach and preach, based on a complementarian's understanding. Whereas egalitarians would argue that this passage is descriptive, that it describes in the moment what was happening in the church uh, when this letter was written. And so the book of the letter of 1 Timothy was written to a church in the city of Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a Greek goddess of fertility. And the temple of Artemis was full of women priests who preached about a god. And because this was so prominent in the city, uh, in the city of Ephesus, women in the church would teach just like the priests in the temple. But then Paul provided an instruction to express his desires for them to first take a posture of quietness, a posture of submission, so that they could at one point learn without interrupting the teaching session and then teach. Again, in reading different commentaries and different articles, different plogs, again, I felt like it was just a matter of how interpretation was being handled. Uh, how do we look at the original language that the Bible is written? How do we look at the verb tenses? How do we look at how verbs were conjugated and all that stuff, which I don't have a, a lot of significant training in. And so 
part of me just wondered, okay, you know, if I'm having a hard time, like if I need to know the original language that the Bible is written, which I'm not saying isn't important, I think it's really important, but if we don't have all those tools to break it down and understand, how do we reconcile these differences to decide what's biblical, if it's the biblical for women to be in leadership or not? And then for some of us, it's really important, is complementarianism right or is egalitarianism right? It's really important for us to have one or the other. I personally don't know if this debate will ever be solved, but I do know that there are complementarians who love Jesus and believe in the Bible, even though they feel like women shouldn't be pastors and, and leaders to a certain degree. And I know egalitarians who love Jesus and believe in the Bible, and I believe that we have to accept that there's truth in both of these perspectives. And regardless of where we stand, in just light of our current um, scenery in our society, we can't view the other who holds a different perspective than us as the enemy. Yet our world in these last few years has been stuck categorizing people and belittling them and thinking little of them based on their stances, and I don't think we should follow suit. We hold different views, and that's okay. They're not the enemies. The enemy is Satan. And so how do we reconcile these differences? This year, our denomination of the Alliance brought this issue to the largest gathering of pastors and church leaders called General Council. And so there was an original issue that arose around a concern about men and women going through the same process, being vetted as qualified ministry workers. Uh, but they would end up, with, end up with different titles and end up with different uh, terms that would describe them completing their process. Uh, which led to unequal, which sometimes led to unequal opportunities in the work field, and so in the alliance before this year, men who completed the licensing process were considered ordained, while women were consecrated. In our denomination, these two words essentially mean the same thing, but designates male workers uh, from well, designates the qualified male workers from the qualified female workers. And so, um, in the alliance, if you ever heard that someone was ordained, it was very natural for you to just automatically understand, oh, okay, that's a qualified male ministry worker. And if you heard that someone was consecrated, that meant that uh, it was a qualified ministry worker. Similar to our, our Hmong language, when uh, I talk about my, my you know, my, my law or my scenes, uh, we know that that's on my dad's side of the family. And when we talk about my dad, that's someone on my mom's side of the family. And so it's similar to that. Again, ordained meant it was qualified men, uh, men ministry workers and um, consecrated meant that it was a female um, ministry worker. Outside of church, ordain is the most widely recognized uh, term that everyone uses, church or non-church, but consecrated isn't. It's kind of like inside language in the, in, in the, in the alliance. And so what, what, the, uh, what some of our leaders at the national level saw was that it prevented qualified women from serving in various opportunities like hospital or military chaplaincy roles. Not even, not even pastors. We're not even talking about issues of, of being pastors, but it prevented women from being able to serve as a hospital chaplain, a military chaplain, because they simply didn't have that language of, that they were ordained. 
And again, the world didn't recognize what consecrated mean, but they understood what, what ordination meant. And so this issue was brought to all of our districts at their respective con uh, conferences, uh, and eventually it was brought to council this year. And so about two, three, or four years ago, I remember this conversation was held at our North Central District Conference. Uh, I'm no, I know Hmong District, they had, a, uh, they had their conferences, and this was brought up to them as well too. And so at council this year, this was brought to be talked about, to be voted on, to see if we would adopt the or ordained language across the board for everybody or would we keep the ordained and consecrated language. And 60% of those who are eligible to vote on this matter decided that it would be best to recognize both men and women as being ordained. Now this also opened up another question because ordination is ordained and ordination is so closely tied to the to the pastor title. It also opened up a question that the alliance had to consider is that if we consider women to also be ordained, do we need to give them the title pastor in the church? Again, because this language is commonly used around that as well too. And so the alliance, while traditionally complementarianism, uh, decided that it was biblical to have the lead pastor be male. And so again, whoever is the lead pastor be male, but each church um, based on their own local autonomy, based on their own governing uh, board, based on their own leaders, based on their own understanding and convictions of the Bible, the, the local churches would have their own autonomy to, to give female ministry leaders the title pastor if they saw fit. And they also told the local churches that if you don't see that fit, if you don't see that to be your conviction, you don't have to give that title. And so they left it up to the local churches to make that decision. Here's a very des good description from our Vice President Terry Smith in an interview from, with Christianity Today. This is what he has to say about it. The alliance has never been neatly categorized as complementarian or egalitarian. Mostly the churches have been led by men, but there are also many prominent women in the domination's history, including missionaries, evangelists, church planters, and solo pastors. They are seen as humble servants of God who are doing what God called called them to do. In the alliance, there's only one bylaw related to gender in ministry, that scripture defines elders as male, and uh, therefore the lead pastor, who is also the head elder, must be male. But within that, alliance churches range from strict uh, and moderate complementarians to broadly egalitarians. And so in our denomination, we're all across the spectrum. I think it's one of the things that I appreciate with the Alliance. There is a lot of theological flexibility within the nomination. And I know, I know being firm and grounded and, and, and holding um, to, to, to specific, specific set of theological um, truths is very important, but at the same time for me, I just feel like these are things that in our best efforts to understand who God is, I don't know if we'll be able to ever understand who God is. And so I, I just don't, personally, I don't feel right confining of this is who God is and these are the things that we have to completely be strict on. I mean, there are things that I absolutely think that we should not bend on in, in believing that God is God, that God is three, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit is God. There are absolutely things that I think we should not bend on, but uh, when it comes to women in leadership, I think it's okay to have some flexibility. And so here at River Life, like I mentioned earlier, we want women in spiritually significant roles. 
That's why our, and, then, and when it comes to our leadership team, um, I, I think our leadership team would describe us as functionally egalitarian. But within the lines, guidelines of complementarianism, where the male eldership um, is the, is the, the model uh, that we also honor based on where, where our denomination stands. And so we are functionally egalitarian, which means that you'll find women preaching, you'll find women praying, you'll find women leading spiritual exercises. We welcome women who prophesy, deliver those who are demonized, women who serve on our board, who lead in the ministries, who stand at the pulpit, who teach and preach. We believe that Genesis 2 shows both men and women in, as co-equal participants in God's design, but in all honesty, again, we're not concerned about which perspective we side with. What has been helpful for me in this process of figuring out what we are working towards uh, is looking towards what does it mean uh, when we are to build God's kingdom? What does that mean? And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says, I am making everything new. And when Jesus came to earth, we experienced him making things new, that he welcomed women to minister with him, uh, which again was an unimaginable thing to do. And women had significant roles in the Old Testament and with Jesus. And if Jesus is making everything new, I think it's worth considering what opportunities we can provide for women to be in church leadership, to exercise their God-given gifts and abilities to the fullest. Think about Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, where Jesus describes God's kingdom like this, that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, uh, that a woman took it and mixed into, about, into it about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. Jesus compares God's kingdom to yeast and how yeast, though small, has a gradual, positive, hidden permeation of Jesus' restoration on this earth, in this world. And if he made a positive change allowing women to minister with him in small and in big ways, I believe we need to allow women to serve in church leadership in small and big ways too to bring God's redemption and restoration into our world. And if I think I was the heir somewhere, Jesus often saw those who were overlooked. Jesus often reached out to those who were marginalized. And I think in our community, women are often the ones who are marginalized, the ones who are overlooked. And so as I think about complementarianism, I think the one concern I have is that it's a matter of, of upholding and, you know, and, and, and securing what we have. It uh, doesn't really help the, the ones who are marginalized and overlooked, but I think with, with the egalitarian, at least what, the one piece that, that I feel drawn to is that it's this piece that we are inviting those who are overlooked and are marginalized into, um, into the space as well, too. In the end here, again, regardless of where we land, whether you agree, disagree, uh, confused, still trying to figure this out for yourself, may we all just simply find ways to support each other um, in serving the church to bring God's kingdom here on earth. Whether we are men, whether we are women, teens, or children, that we all have a hand, a responsibility, a privilege to partake in building God's kingdom here on earth. Let me pray for us.
God, we can see how polarizing the issue of women in church leadership can be. We saw divisions this past summer, Lord. We've seen um, you know, just separation of, of churches, of people, of, of church members, Lord, um, in various denominations, in various churches, Lord. And so, God, regardless of where we stand, Lord, whether we are for women in, in high church, in high um, tr- positions in church le- leadership or not, Lord, may we not fail to, to, to see those who are in the margins and those who are overlooked. May we invite all those, Lord, with whatever capabilities that they have, Lord, may we invite them to further your kingdom. We thank you for the example in Scripture, Lord, of faithful female uh, ministers, Lord, of female workers, faithful women um, leaders in the Bible, Lord, who faithfully served even in the midst of patriarchy in in the face of the culture of what was normal, Lord, that they still trusted you uh, with what skills and abilities you blessed them with to do what it is that they needed to do. God, may we be faithful in inviting all those, especially women, into leadership, Lord, to help them exercise their God-given skills and abilities to the fullest, Lord. That it's not just a certain gender or a certain type of person, Lord, that can, can build your kingdom here on earth, Lord, but it's all of us. You give us the gifts, um, not based on our genders, but you give them based on our faith. And so we ask, Lord, that whoever's faithful, whoever's gifted, Lord, we empower them, that I empower them, Lord. And so allow us to support one another, Lord, in building your kingdom here on earth. We thank you. We pray and let this in your name, Lord. Amen.